Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra value upsized edition of Thrush and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast that's like throwing a bomb and a bull into an antique record store. And speaking of abominable, I'm Aaron, oh, and I'm joined God. as usual. Shut up, that was clever. And I'm joined <laughs> as usual by the Felix to my Oscar, the Butthead to my Beavis, the Mary Kate to my Ashley Olsen. Oh. It's Evan the Metal Man. Good morning. How you doing? <laughs> good morning. How are you going? Yeah, I'm pretty good. <laughs> I am so excited because guess what? What? We have another legendary diva in the studio today. So I hope you've been practicing your knifey spoonie because things are about to get tasty. But that's just how the dominoes fell. Wendy's Portlandian set sail for Hollywood, only to wind up in Springfield as a writer-producer on a tiny little unknown show called The Simpsons, where he oversaw some of the fiercest and funniest episodes in the show's short 33-year history. But before I hop into that, this magnificent grammagician saw it his mission to create and climb the cult classic Mission Hill, proving he never does things the subway. Denny's profession propelled this premiere producer into the Futurama, perfectly punctuating his pop cultural punchlines with such precision they caused us to pop eyes. But forward to the past, this brilliant Burger King of the televisuals also lent his literary licks to load small lounge rooms that left us leaky from all the laugh-out-loud linguistics lingering long after, like how he took the funk houses to Portlandia via business class, for the disenchantment of 22 birthdays with the Chicago party aunt. Or was it 23? Close enough. So please may I help you in serving up a freshly grilled g'day and a would you like fries with that to the Writers Guild Award winning scribe and longtime collaborator of Josh Weinstein, who also captured three Emmy Awards and our hearts with some of the Simpsons' most iconic episodes, including both who shot Mr. Burns's. Lisa versus Malibu Stacy, Marge gets a job, Sideshow Bob Roberts, and the highly offensive Bart versus Australia, which caused many of my countrymen to complain. So today he's here so we can exact our apology on him because how embarrassing. So we welcome to the torture chamber with open arms and mouths to the Jolly Bee who feeds us his golden nuggets of restaurant reviews while sampling the United States of fast food. And oh, great, now I'm hungry. So luckily, <laughs> we've got the chef's choice delivered. It's Mr. Bill Oakley. Yay, how you doing? Welcome to the torture chamber. That was an incredible introduction. I can't, I just want to say before we get too far past it, that was an amazing introduction. Thank you. Well crafted. <laughs> All the food references were terrific and, and also lots of deep cuts from my career yes. there. Uh, I really, I really appreciated it, the craftsmanship that went into that. Yes, thank you very much. Look, we're getting people to listen to music they wouldn't normally to. So the least we can do is butter them up first before torturing them with rah, 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 rah music. But good morning. How are you doing? I am doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for waking up at this crazy hour. Even me, I probably didn't even want to wake up this early, but you know, it's 1030 here. It's oh, not bad. <laughs> We're happy to to go wherever our guests are available mm -hmm. because you're so incredibly good enough to give up your insanely busy schedules to, to come on our show. And the least we can do is be awake. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, really accomplished. So yeah. yes, that's it. But um, on, on behalf of my country, I am so sorry by everyone complaining. I don't know what that was. 
I really don't. Australia has a sense of humor. We're supposed to be able to take the piss out of ourselves. And that happened and you guys got complaints. So I'm sorry. Well, uh, that's okay. It's, it's okay. From what I understand, the complaints were primarily when the show first aired in 1990, yes. like 25 years ago. And mm. since then, people have come to embrace it because I'm always being sent like lots of, uh, of people actually sell flags with the boot. <laughs> on them and things like that and so i see that like initially i think there was a little bit of a shock especially among kids uh because we got a lot of angry letters from teachers would have their kids write letters to us the whole class you know asking why we did this thing to them and uh but since then i've just seen it grow more in popularity uh over time as people have embraced it and now every time i talk to someone australian it comes up in a positive way Yes. Maybe yes. the people who don't like it aren't, aren't communicating with me, though. I don't know. No, well, I'm sure they would, though, because every day everyone complains about like everything. <laughs> like, but that's why it's a surprise that, like, looking back on it now, and I knew at the time that like there was complaints because me being a total nerd and reading the TV guide and you know and and all the entertainment sections of the the newspapers. So I I knew that there was the complaints, but Australia that I knew, the Australia that I grew up in took the piss out of ourselves we had freaking jacko we sold jacko to the world with his i'm an individual you can't fool oh, me i remember that i remember that and and we was we were embarrassed about that you know i remember seeing <laughs> now the, we're embarrassed yes but at the time like no no even at the time i remember seeing one of the commercials and just going oh really is is that what we <laughs> you were a teenager yeah i wasn't and i wasn't so. a fan of footy as well because he was you know a big uh, you, football you, player exactly whereas i'm yeah. a huge footy fan so that was a thing <laughs> of pride to be selling our football and and australia mm. and you know even with paul hogan and and all that jazz like there was a this big huge aussie explosion in the 80s that yeah that's referenced in that episode yes that whole thing with the <laughs> paul hogan stuff and and yeah. the and the, i think jacko's in there too with the battery yeah. with the energizer battery uh as i yes. recall yes yeah i watched it the other day but i don't know if i picked up on the battery which is yeah. stupid because <laughs> i'm the one that brought it up in this conversation uh but anyways speaking of stupid we'll move on to metal now firstly <laughs> If you were a rock star, what would be in your crazy, over-the-top dream rock star rider? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, um, you. um, You're the um, first person that said that. <laughs> you know, I would probably do, if I was going to have to perform, I would probably, it wouldn't be nearly as fun. That's the unfortunate thing. It's like, I, I would like all the treats and liquor and food and stuff for after the concert. Before the concert, I would just like a glass of water. You know, because mm-hmm. I don't because I don't want to get all full and not be able to perform at, at my maximum capacity. But afterwards, I would like uh, a lot of liquor of assorted varieties with a lot of ice. And I would like a lot of cheeseburgers uh, mm-hmm. from uh, from a prominent cheeseburger place. I wouldn't also mind some various candies and things like that. Maybe some huckleberry candies. I like those a lot. That would be hard to get. That would be kind of a rare thing to put in the rider. And what else? I'd also like <laughs> I'd also like to be left alone. So probably a lot of. Uh, you know, a security issues and things like that. So, or I'd also like probably just like to leave as well. So <laughs> the concert venue, I don't know if I'd want to hang around there, but it's, I, okay, this is the first I've ever thought about this. So uh, that's a rough draft of my answer. That is a very rough draft and not yet a goat. I'm still waiting for someone to say they want a random goat just sitting in the corner. I don't know why. <laughs> to see if they'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> but I have, I'm still waiting for something ridiculous, like really over the same, but everyone's too nice. I don't know why, but... anyways we'll move on and i chose the album and why did i choose this because it's freaking kiss everyone knows kiss and um obviously with 
Bill's massively busy schedule and all his fast food videos that he's doing all the time, which I am so jealous, by the way. As you can tell, I eat a lot of KFC and Evan uh-huh. can't believe how much sugar and crap I eat. And then I see your videos and I'm like, oh, Bill, that's not fair. I want your job. <laughs> this isn't really a job, by the way. It doesn't pay any money. I still have my TV writing job, but thank you. There is nothing stopping me from doing it myself obviously except laziness and this podcast uh but i chose their their debut album kiss because no other reason Cause, than that because you didn't know any better because i didn't know any better <laughs> exactly yeah and i figured well their kiss everyone knows them I'm, I'm gonna know at least five of the songs so before we get into discussion i'm gonna quickly run through my review and uh we'll see what i thought of it when i first saw the cover i was confused why are we doing cats for the metal album So bewildered, I pressed play and found it isn't the blockbuster Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, but instead my ears were instantly hit with syphilis. Boy, are the STDs ripe on this sleazy glam rock effort. Not that I'm complaining. Whilst I'm familiar with Gene Simmons's acclaimed work in Great Expectations and The Thornbirds and more, hearing the late great actress getting down and dirty in such a raw way was enlightening. But even with these darker, sleazier numbers, the differences between USA and UK and Aussie glam rock sticks out. Each has its own iconic sounds and flavours and iconic artists. But where British glam feels focused on lyrics and mind-blowing rhythms, Aussie glam feels right at home in a sleazy bar. But American glam feels like it's aimed at catchy rhythms and easy lyrics to hook one in. For even in this early effort, does their future of mainstream stadium-ready sing-along glam feel front and centre? And where I'm not interested in music I've heard a hundred thousand times, this album was actually pretty darn fresh and quite rock and roll. Four stars. Oh, that's pretty, pretty high price. I'm surprised. This felt like the intersection between me and my father, which is something that we've always needed in my 36-year life. (laughs) A buffer between us. This felt like (laughs) Buddy Holly lived and got into glam rock. A lot of these numbers felt rooted in rock and roll. I know they started off as, um, was it Wicket something? a band called Wicked, something that was more rock and roll, and then they went darker. Oh, they were all in different bands, generally. Um, God, I had a list here somewhere. Paul and Jean, before they changed their names, they were Klein and Eisen, mm-hmm. and they were in a band called Wicked something, which I should have written down, but yep. I didn't because I'm an idiot. So, yeah, no, I actually <laughs> really liked this, and I was surprised. I didn't know a single darn song on it. Right. So well done to me. So that, that <laughs> was at least one star for that. Good choice for that. I would have thought you'd at least know either Black Diamond or, or Strutter. No. They were they were relatively big. No, but it was also sleazy. And I, I kind of liked that, which is what I like about glam rock and like skyhooks. Well, see, if you like the album, if you like the album, then you probably wouldn't like them live because uh, they are totally different live. Um, and that was half their problem early on was uh, they sound nothing like they do live than, than oh, really? what was recorded. Yeah, they're way heavier and more raucous and, you know, over the top live than, than they are. So, yeah. So, yeah, you you chose their f- debut album just because you kind of threw a dart at a dartboard. But um, uh, their, first, their first few albums didn't really do that well. And someone made the comment of, you know, well, your live show is, is so much different than how you sound on the albums. 
So after the second album, they just recorded a tour and just called it, I think, Kiss Alive. And that's what really started selling. Um, and they did, they did this double album, which people don't normally do at the time. Was that a double album? There was nine tracks. No, Alive, the third album. Oh, okay. So, okay. Although it's not even listed as a studio album because okay. it was just, they just recorded their tour. They put out this double okay. album. Um, they were doing okay at the time, but not, you know, not worldwide megastars, but it was no. the live album that really took off in terms of sales. So if I had to choose, I would have chosen the live album, which you would have hated. Yeah. They hadn't had their Quincy Jones thriller moment, according to Timberland. <laughs> yeah. Kiss were all about the live show. That was their thing. That was... It was about the fans and it was about being as over top as possible. Theatrical. Oh, it was blowing fire. It was spitting blood. Yeah. It was the costumes. It was just mental. They were, they were just an absolute mess on stage, just in terms of music anyway. You know, like other bands didn't like going on after them, mainly because they would show them up so much. This is early yeah. on when they're supporting. And because obviously, because he'd spit blood on stage and, and make a mess of the stage and yeah. yeah, trash the place. And yeah, other bands had come out to this trash stage, which I'm sure isn't fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not oh. surprised. Now, Bill, have you had much experience with Kiss or heavy metal in general? Really, I should have asked that before. I have, well, I have a lot to say about this particular subject, actually. Yes. Kiss was, I was, a, I was in fifth grade when this, I don't know how that makes me seem a lot older, I guess, when this stuff, when Kiss became really big. And I remember, Evan, what you're talking about here, because looking at this album, I did not have the same, I did listen to all this stuff. I, I did right. not recall this album at all. And I don't recall a single one of these songs. And it sounds astonishingly primitive and thin and like, you know, garage band mm. compared to what I remember as Kiss. Um, and I was like, this is, this really seems like amateur hour. And it sounds like from what you're saying, Evan, they actually were not that popular. And this album wasn't that big. No. And I remember looking through these, I remember like their four. Okay. So the first song by Kiss I ever remember he hearing was from Dress to Kill, their third album, Rock and Roll All Night. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we have the double album that you're talking about, Alive. And this was all when I was in uh, fourth and fifth grade. And then Destroyer, yep. which had Detroit Rock City. And then the album, now the album I remember everybody having. I don't know if I had it or not. It was Rock and Roll Over, 1976. And I had Calling Dr. Love, which I must have heard a bazillion times, um, as well as a couple other songs that I remember. Uh, but this was a song. This, like, Kiss was the biggest thing mm. in, um, in fifth grade in America. And, like, everybody was talking about it all the time, playing this, this particular album, Rock and Roll Over. And there was so much, like, they were always featured in every, like, you know, every publication, they're always on uh, their covers of mag, all the rock, back when mm -hmm. there were rock and roll magazines, like cream and stuff on the newsstands. And, uh, but I also recall that it wasn't long after, it wasn't even before the end of fifth grade that everyone started to turn on them because it was, it, the satanic thing got started. And everybody was like, KISS is a, it's, it's an acronym for Knights in Service to Satan. And everybody was 100% convinced this was true. And my friend who was the biggest KISS fan in the world, either burned or somehow destroyed all his albums and immediately the uh the basically the whole that was the last we ever heard of kiss so honestly it sort of peaked and ended all in fifth grade um due to this due to these crazy rumors um and that's that's pretty much what i have to say about kiss wow. <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty much spot on like yeah just you know they their the popularity was was on the upswing with um alive and then destroyer and 
rock and roll rock and roll all over and then it started going downhill again yeah. you got things like they started being very hollywood um gene simmons started dating sure which the fans didn't like that's that's kind of i remember yeah. that oh yeah. gene simmons is a guy yeah <laughs> it's not the actress <laughs> no he was he was actually a renowned nymphomaniac that, yeah, they they all had their vices, which you know did sort of start to bring them down. You know, I think it was Ace Freely was was heavily into every every vice, generally. Um, Paul Stanley was into musical theatre. Oh, okay. He played the Phantom in the Phantom of the Opera, I believe. But yeah, they they started going sort of very Hollywood and and you know selling out technically. But yeah, Gene had Gene Simmons was renowned for sleeping with anything that moved. It was around yeah rock and roll all over and Love Gun the the, the band sort of well, they weren't getting along, and the record label thought uh, instead of breaking up, why don't you do a solo album? And then oh hang on maybe why doesn't each band member do a solo album? So they released like four albums in one year. One's called Paul Stanley, one's called Gene Simmons, one's called Ace Freely, one's called Peter Chris. And I think then it was, they still stuck together for another album. Then they all took their makeup off and they had this unmasked sort of decade. Because uh, they, they went through a long time of actively hiding their, their identities. Uh, and they're literally coming out of restaurants, covering their faces and uh, having paparazzi chase them. And they just... Although it was nice to be able to walk down the street and not be recognized. Mm -hmm. Ace Freely was getting annoyed with it because he wanted to be recognized. He wanted to be a star. He has a star on his face. That was his thing. He, he wanted to be huge. So they did eventually unmask and they did like 10 years. The lineup changed a lot during that. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, Gene Simmons stayed around. He, he never left. I think Paul Stanley never left either. But yeah, it was around that mid-70s, someone decided that they should make a movie. Oh, yeah. And they made a film called Kiss Meets the Phantom. And it turns out, I think it was a great lesson, and it's probably why you don't see it ever, of putting a band in a film, because none of them knew how to act. I saw Spice World, <laughs> the movie, on opening day, Evan, oh. by myself. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and at this point, you know, Ace Freely was really heavily drinking and, and into any substance he can get, and his, he would often not show up didn't want to do it you know he just wanted to play and there's there's literally scenes in that film where it's not him it's a stunt double in makeup and then they ended up redubbing all of his lines anyway because he was just terrible <laughs> and it was just a massive flop and and on top of merchandise you know in the, the parallels between kiss and the simpsons with merchandise yeah i would say nothing merchandise is more than simpsons but i think kiss might have they literally put their name on everything it, it was just everywhere and even to the yeah. point of selling kiss makeup and oh, it, was, it was just you name it they had kiss on it it was just nuts and they were making millions out of it because they bought everything it was the fans were just rabid for anything kiss and like you said you during their peak you know you'd go to the newsstand and it, every cover of every magazine would be kiss they'd be across all yeah. genres you know they'd be in the the gossip papers, they'd be in the music papers, that you know, the lifestyle magazines, you name it. Kiss was on the cover. It was it was nuts. They didn't swear, did they? In their music, I mean, like the the music wasn't really explicit. Oh, I, I've never heard that brought up. I I can't think of any. Well, they no. are. Well, think about it. it was Kiss dolls that were very popular with children. So you'd think they're being marketed to all ages. Kiss it's, comics and that oh. a, that time in America, I don't know if there would be 
giant f-bombs in the middle of <laughs> songs aimed at children i don't know it was a bit different in australia we had you know prisoner and number 96 and all those sh- we had titties on primetime tv basically <laughs> wow in the 70s yeah well yeah. i wasn't alive then obviously but um it was the exploitation era so it was very raunchy in australia <laughs> But just, just randomly, one of the coolest things in, in doing my research, um, yeah, because obviously mm-hmm. I've heard plenty of Kiss. I didn't realize there was that many albums. It's like 24 albums, and that's not counting live ones. Oh, shit, I missed what year it was. Uh, I think it was about 96. They'd had their rise. They had their fall. They've gone through lineup changes um, and infighting and all the rest of it. They'd taken the makeup off for about 10 years, and they'd yeah. been really quiet. And I think it was the 96 Grammys. Oh, they, the people were starting to do kiss conventions and doing cover bands. And, you know, they sort of realized that people still wanted them. And the, all the cover bands, of course, were all in makeup. And I think Peter Chris was even at one of the conventions and got up and played with them. And, you know, yeah. his fans went nuts. But they sort of realized just, you know, how popular they still were. This is mm-hmm. 20 years after the fact. And somehow they just sort of, they got together and went, hey, you know, everyone wants us in the makeup again. Let's, let's get the original lineup back, get the makeup on, and let's just give it another shot. So I think it was the 96 Grammys. They went in full makeup, full costume, didn't tell anybody, didn't even announce to the Grammys that they were coming. They literally just walked in. Wow. But uh, again, it didn't didn't last. <laughs> there was fighting over money and all the rest of it. And the lineup changes again. Oh, that was the, the other crazy thing is they didn't tell because they had replaced people. Uh, they'd replaced band members. And then they've reformed really without telling them either. So they see them on the Grammys and they're like, oh, well, I guess I'm out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the infighting they, they fell apart again and and the the replacement members came back so they did end up back in kiss again but yeah just oh, there's a there's a clip of it on youtube of them sort of walking out unannounced on the grammys and it's it's just like oh wow what what a thing to see to to have seen that yeah i have to look that up i'd started watching a documentary on them but i got about a minute in and realized oh shit i better get to editing <laughs> I don't have time to watch an 83 minute documentary right now. Yeah, they've just got a hell of a story, basically, just in general. They, they really did take over the world for a period there. It was just kiss everywhere. What was that like in America at the time, Bill? Because th- this is a very theatrical, very camp, I- I'm going to say very gay <laughs> band when you look back at it now. You know, they're prancing around in makeup and big hair and cod pieces. Today, we do call that RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> It was about 20 kilos of stud and armor. He has a lot of gear to wear. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's very camp. Was that very masculine at the time? It didn't seem particularly gay at the time because we had, you know, at the same time you had village people, other more intentionally, uh, you know, depicted as gay groups. And so they seemed like heavy metal. And it wasn't really that different than Alice Cooper. I mean, the thing about it is, like, everybody kind of knew Alice Cooper, who had sort of pioneered this kind of thing. And then Kiss did it, and then Marilyn Manson did it. Like it's it's not it's been going around for a long time. Yep. This particular type of stuff. So it, it more it seemed like it seemed more heavy metal, and it seemed pretty pretty, and everybody loved it until this whole the whole satanic thing came along and frightened everybody away from them. Or I don't know everybody, at least everybody I knew. Yeah, there was people who thought that the the blood was real, and there were you know someone accused gene simmons of killing puppies to get the blood to spit on stage and yeah the the press got really nuts um it's funny you should mention alice cooper though because that's the that was the inspiration for the makeup they did actually go to an alice cooper show late early 70s they're like oh that's so cool you know looking at his alice cooper's makeup and going oh that's so cool what if what if we were four alice coopers and 
off they went. It worked. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, doesn't insane insane clown posse still does this type of thing too, right? I'm not really familiar with their whole their whole genre or all their fans, but like it seems like there's always been ever since Alice Cooper, there has been someone doing this shtick uh, nonstop since it was invented. Yeah. Are they juggalos? They're fans. Yes, they're juggalos. Wow, yeah. I remember that from 20 years ago. <laughs> I think they're still around, though. Yep, they are. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, no, they. I thought they were wearing makeup because they were swings for cats, and they were waiting to get the call to go on. <laughs> I don't think there's much else because it's Kiss. Everyone knows Kiss, so what's the point in continuing? Yeah, Kiss were all about the fans. It was the fans that drove them more so than the music, and certainly more so than the albums. It was the live shows that was. Yeah, yeah they, the, the live shows nearly sent them broke. Actually, by the time they recorded their third album, they were pretty much skint because of the the cost of the the live shows and they just weren't making their money back Mm -hmm. and nowadays the fans drive me crazy anyways we'll kiss goodbye to metal (laughs) and throw it to an app break coming this summer winter spring or fall the first ever musical theater sitcom where you go behind the scenes of the latest West End show, The Fosse Forest Ballet. Where's the important stuff? Aha! A thousand pound a week ensemble rate. Ah, that's what Mamma Mia likes. Starring Philip Joel and a West End cast featuring Carrie Alice, Darren Denny, Louise Demon, and Oliver Savile, and more. It all started in 1987 when I was a jobbing actress working in a diner. Yeah, it's just, I I had a really bad experience when I was touring Australia with a wombat. (gasps) Darling! How long have I been mentoring you? Three months? Two years. So, her name is Henrietta. The horse. Yes. I've managed to secure you an audition for the biggest, most innovative, and the latest show to be going into the West End. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Think more along the lines of Pant. Frozen. You can watch this episode for the price of a coffee. Simply go to www.thefussyforestbelly.com. Any and all profits go back to theatre charities, acting for others, and the theatre's trust. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll see a grown man in sparkly tights. Tight nights. Nice. Tight. Anyways, we're back with Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Evan, and we are joined by the one and only, the amazing Bill Oakley. Holy guacamole. But anyways, (laughs) we're going to move on to the musical. Before we do, I've got a fun question for you. What episode of The Simpsons do you think would make a fun Broadway musical if fleshed out? Well, honestly, I think that that we should do Planet of the Apes, the musical. In fact, people have, I think that whole fish called Selma should be Planet of the Apes. The musical should be a musical. And I honestly can't actually somebody, people have been talking about this for a very long time. Somebody wrote a complete script for it and sent it to me like 20 years ago. And I couldn't, we couldn't read it for, you know, cause we can't just read random scripts that people mail us, but um, it's been, it's come up a lot. And I wish that, uh, I'm sure it's going to be done at some point and uh, as a Simpsons thing. And I, w- I wish I would get some money for it, but uh, that's not the way it works. No. The problem is that the Disney owns the rights to it. So, so I won't be doing it. I have, I'm actually working on my own or I'm just going to, I'm thinking about writing a Broadway musical based on something else that I have. Yeah produced and written but 
it's not that. Ugh, I don't want to go back. I don't. I don't want to go back into working on Simpsons material. Yeah, did a good job and left it behind. And yeah. I'd rather not get back it, uh, un- reopen that can of worms. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. But we'll move on anyway, because while we've mentioned Disney, just in your work in general, because animation, you you've talked about obviously not every animation writer talks about getting a, a lot more freedom in the writer's room in terms of not having the network oversight. Have you ever experienced much backlash from third parties, like other corporations? I'm not talking about fans complaining. I'm talking about like companies that have been like, we're going to pull out advertising from you. I wouldn't say that we've had a lot of issues like that. Like the thing that stuff doesn't get on the air. It only uh-huh. gets on the air on The Simpsons because the lawyers are very... Uh, uh, the, boy, the lawyers that we had in The Simpsons were extremely nice yeah. and just said everything can be, pers- this is a joke, it's clearly a joke and and however yeah. the lawyers elsewhere are not like that and they don't let you put that stuff in uh-huh. so I have, I mean I never have had you don't, that stuff simply does not get on the air it doesn't even get past the second draft of the script generally, anything that would offend any corporation, like I gather that you can do that in movies because movies are not supported by uh, commercials so much but now they kind of are because of streaming service, anyway so, but on TV shows, they don't even let you refer to things, you know, in general, the lawyers take it out. Um, if it's, if it's not, if it's, if not just, if it's completely neutral, maybe they'll let you keep it in. But even so, they'll be like, can we replace this mention of this brand? So I, I, I'm sorry to say, and other times we've tried, we've actually asked permission. We've only gotten it. We got it a couple of times. On Mission Hill, we got permission from Bugles mm-hmm. to have Bugles be Andy French's favorite snack. Mm-hmm. And they were delighted about it. But other things that that's the, one of the few times we're asking has not resulted in an outright no. Wow. Because I know um the Sex and the City reboot um had Yeah, Peloton is very I bet they're they're not happy about that. Peloton, yeah. And they're like, we didn't know that you were gonna kill him with our bike for crying out loud. Yeah. yeah. And, and literally, literally counteracted it with an ad campaign saying, no, 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 he's fine. Yeah. It wasn't the bike that killed him. But no, Evan, <laughs> he wasn't fine because he was cancelled the very next day. But anyways, we're going to move on to the musical because I chose another mainstream musical that everyone knows. Hopefully, fingers crossed, that's also an animation put on the stage. So I chose The Lion King as we've just had uh, the Pumba that I had seen on the show. And we also had a Rafiki so I figured hopefully, oh. Bill, you'll have seen The Lion King at least once uh, in the past 20, however many years. Is it 28 years now? Oh, shit. No, I should say no. I've never, I've only seen fragments of The Lion oh, King. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. The movie, and I've only, and I've never seen this musical. And I have, <laughs> I have opinions about it. Go ahead. Yeah. No, oh, look, so do I. So do I. <laughs> but um, okay, so Evan, if you want to quickly mm. run through your review yep. and, and how you yep. found... Because Evan, you uh, wouldn't have seen anything. You're the middle I, well. Obviously, I've seen the films uh, many, many times. I have children. Oh, and, oh well, know. if I'd known that, I would have picked Anastasia. <laughs> I think everyone has. Uh, who, who was it who mentioned um, that? Like the Lion King is one of the biggest properties, you know, in general. It was John. Yeah, where you know, once you add up all the all the merchandise and all the movies and all the musicals and merchandise from that, I, I'm annoyed that um, that you've spoiled it for me. Because, oh, my God, I was watching clips and yeah. behind the scenes. And, you know, you know, I'm a I'm a DIY or I, I, I I'm literally in my workshop now. An artisan. And the technical work behind the stage is incredible. 
it's next level okay yeah i won't i won't argue back with you yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i mean obviously everyone knows lion king everyone knows the main the main songs can feel the love tonight and you know circle of life as soon as you hit play and it hits you know circle rafiki hits circle of life and it immediately it's those disney feels disney nostalgia you know that disney money it's just ah it gets you immediately um and you're right back with you know watching it with your little kids and over and over and over again yeah rafiki steals the show just outright basically um one of the things that really stuck out to me listening to it is i love the sound of the snare that just being you know drummer orientated i love the tuning of the snare it's just, it's beautiful you're, you're i love talking it. broadway musical here yeah just okay. the snare drum really stands out of just being gorgeous i don't know how expensive that drum is and how well tuned it is but it's beautiful i'm amazed they actually managed to improve on the film with the musical and and the the new songs i find are even more they're better than the popular ones that everyone knows which ones? The Madness of King Scar, yes. No, mainly the uh, the traditional... That is gorgeous, but... Yeah, the traditional African music, just like the Grassland chant, really sticks out. A lot of that was pre-written for Rhythm of the Pride Lands. Yes, which was still, you know, based on the Lion sort King. Music inspired by the Lion King, yes. Yeah. Yeah, those in-between ones. Was it One by One, Shadowland? Yeah, yeah. I was surprised to hear a lot, The Lion Sleeps Tonight rendition in there and it was a really nice take on it yeah, but it goes for like a minute and it's not the song it's it doesn't matter it's still really cool the full song's on rhythm of the protest <laughs> so i wasn't a fan of things like um like the morning report and chow down now morning reports from the movie but they cut it out ah okay but you can tell why not a fan of that but the traditional good song the traditional african songs or new, newer songs that were made for the other album um yeah they those are the ones that really stood out when you've got it was just so authentic and and big big choruses you know just i do love the um you know african slash south african singing it's it's, it's amazing but yeah it, so i i found i listened to this m- more times than i did the kiss album oh wow it was at least three or four which is like I said, I bought some new headphones, so I was able to listen to it a lot more, and I was putting this back on a lot. But yeah, I was annoyed that you spoiled the Lion King for me because I started watching behind the scenes and little clips here and there, and it's the 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 whole they do a circle theme where like all the gazelles come out in circles. Um, there's there's a lot of circles. The masks are circles, like yeah, um, they they patterns, run us. Is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, they run patterns and things through it all yeah. the way through. Um, but what really blew me away again was the technical side of it, like the the costumes being they they're like carbon fiber puppets. Now they'd be expensive to make, and they, you know they have to remake them. There's over three hundred pieces of costumes and puppets for multiple productions. No, no, just for the one show. For multiple productions around the world, though, they're not going to make one puppet and then send it around the world. Oh, sure, sure. They have to make multiple editions. Yeah, and you you never make just one of anything, Evan. Oh, of course not. They keep getting, they get damaged, they get replaced, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But but they're mostly carbon fiber, balsa wood. They're super light. Yeah. The attention to detail in in like literally weaving grass bead corsets. Um, obviously, it's not real grass, but you know, you know, painting the shoes to the skin tone of each individual actor. Uh, they even had this system. They had this computer controlled system. Oh, the lighting, of course. There's two separate lighting desks. 
you know, which is freaking out of the park already. When, when, they, when they come off stage, an actor will come off stage, performer will come off stage and they'll take their costume off and it hangs on these motorized hooks. They've got like a, a track uh, gear system where they'll hang things up and the computer will take it off back to where it's supposed to be. Wow. And, and, and the same, like backstage is just as high tech as the front stage. That was in the touring company. So God knows what they did on Broadway. Maybe they don't have a room on Broadway to do that. It's something like 27 truck containers of gear to move the show. And I, 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 was, I was blown away by how it looks and the, the, the technical background of it, the, the, just um, how much effort they would have had to go through to put that show on stage. And it really pushes the boundaries of what you can achieve on a stage. I, I mean, this isn't, I was sitting there saying a few times to myself, I don't think this is a musical. This is, you know, this is a show. It's a theatrical event. Yes. Yeah. It's an event. Yeah. And you've spoiled it for me because I can now, I now see it. I've seen what what's on stage. I'm really jealous that you've seen it. I, I saw it in 2004 after mm. seven years of build up, really desperate to see it. And I wasn't impressed, but I'll get to that. Now, Bill, <laughs> I wasn't impressed. Oh. You, you had um, a lot of thought. Well, no, there, there was a lot. I've, I've done a pros and cons list, but we'll do that last. Ah. Yeah. Oh, and, and just the, um, the, uh, the other little behind the scenes thing I saw was um, the actors or the performers having to learn to become puppeteers. Um, and they're going, you know, it doesn't matter what your background is in, in performing. We all had to learn how to be puppeteers and, and they suffer from um, repetitive puppetry syndrome where, you know, Pumbaa might be on stage for like seven minutes, but they've rehearsed that, you know, it, it, every week for, you know, hours and they're having to do the same actions over and over and they're, they're you know, straining muscles they didn't know they had and, he goes, you know, and then and then your back goes, and and you know, and then your, uh, your your hands are cramping up, and the physical toll is really quite immense on on the performance uh, to to put that on. Um, so yeah, I was I was blown away. I, I was amazed that you could even do this kind of thing on the stage. And if I had to give it a score, it's it's got to be over five somewhere, somewhere between five and ten. You know, it, it premiered in 1997, so they've been able to do that sort of thing since at least mm. 1997. Oh, it's, it's genius. It's inspired. Yeah. And I really wish it would come here or I could go somewhere to see it. It's been to Perth twice, I think. Yeah, I know. Or at least once. Uh, now, Bill, you said you had a lot of thoughts about this, so I am <laughs> no, so curious. I don't. I'm not qualified. You're not qualified? Okay, let me just start by saying I'm not qualified to judge these things. I don't like Broadway musicals in general all that much, <laughs> so I'm probably not, I should, probably shouldn't be on this show. Um, that's why to then force people who don't like musicals to listen to musicals. I listened to this whole thing and I didn't enjoy it. Um, that's the problem. I guess I would say I'd have, okay. I think your entry point based on what you said, Evan, you have to, it have to have some familiarity with the lion King yeah. and have some affection for it mm. to care about this at all. Okay. I've seen fragments of the movie. Um, I've, 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 my kids have seen it obviously, and I've seen it. Well, I was walking through the room. I didn't sit and watch it with my kids um, multiple times, but it wasn't one of their favorites either. So um, I'm familiar with many of the other more recent Disney movies and things, but this one, I'm only, I mean, I know Tim Munn and Pumbaa and all those things or whatever, but I don't, I don't have a familiarity with the story and I don't have a great deal of affection for it. So I listened to this as a person only vaguely familiar with the story and with no, with no built-in affection for the franchise. Okay, so uh, I listened to the songs and I was just like, 
I didn't really enjoy any other songs were all fine, but I found other than the African ones, I found them to be fairly indistinguishable from every other Broadway musical song from the past 20 years. Like, and this is like, I could be, and I know this is heresy to those of you who follow Broadway musicals. I have, there's only certain Broadway musicals that I, that I've listened to repeatedly. Like, and they're ones with, they're, they're ones from the 50s and 60s with real catchy songs like Guys and Dolls or The Music Man or things like that. This had, this didn't have any catchy songs as far as I, there didn't have any songs like was, I wanted to listen to a second time or hum or whatnot. And so, you know, I'm definitely a Philistine when it comes to this Broadway, all most recent Broadway things. I've seen a couple things where, where I enjoyed it, but in general, I find that I find all the songs to be somewhat similar to one another. Um, and, and I don't, they all kind of blend together and I don't walk out of the theater going, Oh man, I'd love to hear that song again. So what I'm doing, what I hear is not, I'm not seeing this as an event, as a spectacle, as a musical. I'm hearing it as a playlist of songs that I that I've never heard before, and I didn't I didn't find any of them to be particularly delightful to the point that I wanted to listen again. Whereas in Kiss, I did. There were two or three songs in Kiss that I listened to twice because I was like, "Hey, that's pretty good." Um, this did not didn't have that didn't happen. And I've I'm familiar with the Circle of Life, by the way. That's the one everyone <laughs> knows because it plays in all the previews and stuff. So that one that got I didn't count that in my in my assessment anyway there you go uh i'm sorry to uh, <laughs> sorry to be so contrary no. to the conventional wisdom about this no no that's the point that is entirely that, the point that's why we have this show is is to to explore what we do and don't like in worlds that we're not normally gonna dive into like as i say after seven years of build-up from it premiering on broadway to premiering in melbourne and seeing it I was so, so goddamn excited and seeing the movie at the cinemas. And that was the first time I had ever seen an audience applaud at the end of a movie because the cinema was just gripped with that original film. And so I was so goddamn excited. We had premium tickets that were $200 each, you know, front row of the balcony, right in the middle, really fucking expensive. Uh, So my pros and cons are, the puppetry and costumes, fantastic. The music and the African culture was great, but the songs, the the English songs, if you will, the Western songs were rather juvenile. That morning report mm-hmm. didn't fit in the melody of it. or the, It's jarring. It's sort of just like, I've heard that sort of melody before. It's like riding a horse. That's really what it sounded like. They were riding a horse. It didn't fit with where we were, what we had just come from, this grand opening. Um, so that already took me mm. out of where we were. And these are things like I've been thinking about this since I saw it because I didn't know if it was me that was the problem or if it was the show that was the problem. <laughs> okay, I loved the culture and authenticity behind it up until that point, And it was 2004, so I was, what, 19? I don't think I had seen a musical that was predominantly not white, basically, if you will, because Hairspray hadn't come here yet and we haven't had Dreamgirls or... We've had one production of The Wiz in the 70s. Uh, and the one production of The Wiz I did see was entirely white. So <laughs> that didn't work out. Plus, I was in an all-white King and I. So um, the ideas behind it, fantastic. And the performances were fantastic. But it was messy. The staging of it was messy. It's all good and well to have these puppets, but when they came down the aisles and met up on the stage, there's meant to be this scene in the movie where all those animals bow down. 
and mm-hmm. they didn't. They sort of just waved their arms around like fucking. Oh. And so with all these puppets, look, watch it again, and you will see there is no yeah. clear choreography with all these animals. If they had a, if they had been waves of movement, like a Mexican wave of movement, or something, anything that wasn't goddamn messy, and so straight up from that opening number, I'm like, what am I watching? I think there's a choreographer out there who's getting their gun right now. Good. <laughs> Bring it on. Come on my show and we'll have this. We'll, we'll debate this. The script, uh, Juvenile, was childish. It script was, what? The script, the book was Juvenile. For the stage, it was. It's your prodigal son coming of age, uh, you know, growing up to become a man, filling your father's uh, shoes type story. And this was an animated movie. That made people applaud at the end of it, Evan. Yeah. The first time I'd ever seen people applaud and, and Beauty and the Beast could have done that, but it didn't. The Lion King did. So therefore, it, and it's based on Hamlet. Therefore, you don't go down the juvenile route for crying out loud. The leveling and the sound design was lazy. There were songs that the song would be quite at a middling level and then it would go to a dance break, which would double in volume. And it was quite jarring. And it did that, I think, twice during the show, and it took me out of what I was watching. See that that you, there, your beef is with the sound uh, engineer at the, on the day. And this is the show that I've sat down and paid two hundred dollars for, Evan. So I'm judging the Fair show enough. on what Fair I enough. saw. Thank Fair you enough. very much. I told Pumba last week that I I whispered it to him. I didn't like it because then it takes <laughs> away the pain, and at least made him laugh. I, okay, the sets were kind of good. I know Freddie came on this show and said that she loved the minimalism behind it, but I just paid $200 for this. Yeah, that was on purpose. They were saying that they needed to be able to, they needed not just on purpose, but they needed to be able to fit into any theater that they were going to go to. So it was on purposely minimal. That's why they do tour versions. What you actually saw going on. You know, backstage, there was just, uh, backstage was just mental um, technological achievements. I'm sure it was. Well, but no, for two hundred dollars a ticket for a barren stage with fucking swaying lettuce in the most romantic <laughs> number that was not good enough from Wait, disney later. when eight years before we had seen beauty and the beast where this magnificent castle set came out and it was huge and it was brilliant and it was spectacular this was puppets that's that was the spectacle and i don't think it was enough for two hundred dollars i don't care how expensive they are because there are three and a half thousand people in that theater so they're making their money anyways performances i got no i already said that the execution 70 percent of it was good and that was that wasn't good (laughs) enough for me how i've never heard you tear into a musical like this before well think of how much i loved the Lion King, as I just said, I still have the yeah. CD. It's, it's, well, I would have gotten it out like I got my rent one out last week, but there's too many spiders behind there. And the price point, fucking ridiculous. What the hell? This is a children's <laughs> musical and there's barely any set. Why are you charging me $200 a ticket? Because <laughs> those are carbon fiber Giselles that are hand painted and they have to be replaced every few shows. So, yeah, there's where your money went. Yeah, well, and then Julie Taymor went on to direct Across the Universe using Beatles music and what the hell was that movie? And then she went to direct Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. So please, Broadway, stop giving her money. Sorry, I'm <laughs> sure she's talented, but anyways, that's that's why I didn't like The Lion King, all those reasons. Wow. So I'm completely with you, Bill. 
I am completely with you. This was not a good. I'm fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I didn't see the line. You're talking about an actual performance mm. of this thing. I'm just talking about a playlist of songs. So yeah. it seems like this is, for us, it's struck out in every possible way. Yes. Oh, the, the, the Africa, as I said, the African music is great, but yeah, uh, that was already on the Rhythm of the Bradlands, so there wasn't anything really new besides Chow Down. Yeah, I think that was good, but I didn't like as a musical. It wasn't something that that I want to listen to over and over again. Yeah, no, save no. your money. It just seems, you know, honestly, I think you guys. I'm sure you guys have covered this. It seems like at least half. I don't know how many. What percentage of musicals are just franchises are just famous intellectual property like Spider Man and The Lion King? and movies and TV things that already exist that they are like, let's figure out a way to exploit this and get some more money out of it. <laughs> Pretty much from the start. Yeah, there's a good chunk. From the start, it was novels and it was um, like the, is it the Tin Pan Alley where the, the songwriters would all be right. collecting up songs and they turn them into musicals. Right. Broadway has been franchising everything the same as Hollywood really for since existence yeah basically well so, yeah same as movies really you know let's just yeah. adapt this novel that i found yeah it's just more predominant now perhaps it's just that it's they're using intellectual property that i don't particularly have any affection for maybe that's my complaint because i don't care about seeing a spider-man musical or a lion king musical or if they were to use intellectual property that i was interested in like planet of the apes then i would i'd probably be there and i would probably be <laughs> giving it a far more positive review because i had built-in affection for the yep. franchise before I walk in the door. Yes. Uh, I don't, they've done a little bit of sci-fi, but there's really not, there's no space. No, the Broadway audience is not, doesn't like that kind of stuff. Mm. No, well, not, they don't know if they do. You go to a Broadway show in New York and you see the, the composition of people who attend Broadway shows. It's not the sci-fi mm. crowd. I, I, I can't think of anything that is actually set in space or is about aliens I think that with Amy Adams movie, what was that one? Rival. I think that would make a fantastic small musical with a small cast and an amazing puppet behind the glass, like yeah. and like a small chamber musical, not a not a big one. So, because that was a very much a character study. That, but no, Broadway doesn't do much in the way of sci-fi. So I I can't imagine they would do Planet of the Apes, but they did Shrek. Yeah, and SpongeBob. And SpongeBob, which is apparently really successful. Well, it didn't last too long on Broadway. You can see there's there is a pro shot. We'll we'll do it eventually. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, no. But look, everything's they they even made Pretty Woman oh, into God. a musical. Yes. Yeah, Brian Adams did that. We'll do musicals. What, what don't almost all musicals end up having to be family friendly, crowd pleasers? Mm. Like they don't get to be genre pieces very much. No. They don't get to be sci-fi or horror no, or whatever. Um, they have to be. Yeah. No, I think you'll find there's a lot of irreverence. Yeah, there's a limit, you know, to what they there's can put on stage. A lot of nudity. A lot of, lot of nudity. Right. Well, well, and well, and, nudity. Which yeah. ones? Wait, when you talk about Oh Calcutta, which ones? Well, that's what, what I was. And, yeah. Uh, what Hair? nudity and orgies have we seen on Broadway in the past 20 years? Uh, Rent, there was an orgy scene. Under a sheet. Where they're all con well, still, but it's still a sex scene. When you go and see that as a 12-year-old with your mother, it's a little bit Mommy, uncomfortable. why are they all fighting under much. that sheet? I knew what they were doing, thank you very much. They were literally like hot, sweat, sweet, wet, yes. and all that, you know. They, they were totally into it. Yeah, there's been a, like, there's next to normals about, I mean, it's not 
not about sex or anything, but it's it's about um, bipolar disease. So it's very dark and and very gritty. Is I find there's a lot of irreverence, yeah, but no one's throwing um, no one's throwing blood and guts on stage in a horror musical. Yes, really? they are what? in Sweeney Todd. Oh, okay. It's yeah, true, Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd, Little Shop of Horrors, everyone gets eaten. <laughs> there's um, another one which yeah. just popped into my mind and then popped out again: the, the Toxic Avengers, Bat Boy, the musical. Yeah, now there's there's quite a fair bit, um, and we'll we'll do Sweeney Todd again at some stage because you haven't seen it in some time you say no I haven't seen a it. legend uh, but anyways i think the lion king has lied down that was a really terrible the Lion king has slept in the jungle this yes that's it uh, the lion is sleeping tonight I, whatever we're gonna go to an ad break <laughs> we're back in a moment with bill oakley G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. Oh, how can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I, I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened, everybody gathered around. I didn't see one person who wasn't watching. And then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? Whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime, but it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins, but both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, 
Toniston joins Polly on her own, equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large, white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom or what may be operating this obscure crane. Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony, and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spiderweb? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Alrighty, you're listening to Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Evan, and we are joined by animation writer extraordinaire Bill Oakley. Goodness gracious me. Now, okay, you're on a rather politically incorrect show. Um, now, I can tell the difference in watching a comedy show of what's an attack and what's someone's personal feelings or and what's a joke. But this sudden quote-unquote cancel culture and PC culture that we're suddenly in at the moment has that changed your work in any ways or how you approach your work? Uh, it, it hasn't, but I don't, I, the stuff I do generally hasn't been that controversial. Yep. Like it's not based, it's not like I'm doing like monologues about contemporary events. The stuff that I do is almost hundred percent character driven mm-hmm. stuff where it's now selling the stuff. Like it's never, it's never easy to sell stuff like to sell your pitch or your show to a network. It's not any easier now than it was then. It's like, and you, you never know what they're looking for either. Like now they're like, you know, they claim to be looking for stuff of a certain type and then they, they don't buy that stuff when you go pitch it. So who knows? Like in any case, I haven't had a lot of problem with that, uh, with that type of thing because I don't deal in contemporary. I don't like do a lot of shock value type stuff like Louis CK or whatnot. And so it's not been a big issue uh, for me. Uh, although, I mean, I think there's also different types of cancel culture to be honest, like, there's cancel culture that's well-deserved, like Harvey Weinstein or something like that, where it's like, it's long overdue that these people be canceled. Then there's the unfortunate type. There's, I mean, there's probably other types as well, but the unfortunate type is when the, the, the canceling people don't understand what they're canceling or they're mistaken about yeah. what they're angry about. The context is gone. That's what right. it is. The context yeah. is gone. And so it is, I have heard from other people that I work with that it's much harder to do things that are satirical or that are tongue in cheek because people don't get it. People don't realize that you were being, <laughs> that it was tongue in cheek or satirical, or they don't care. Like you're like, they don't, they either don't understand the, the subtleties. They certainly don't understand the subtleties, but they also don't care because they're like, well, you said blank. And you're like, well, I was being ironic. People don't know what, even know what that means. So that's, that's an unfortunate sidelight of this, but you know, I, it's not, you can't lump all, can't, the whole cancel culture thing was also even the phrase was made up by the right wing, you know, to help them get away with more shit. So like, <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate that 
it's, it's not all the same thing. There's sometimes there is consequences. That's what I would say. You know, long overdue consequences are not the same as a incoherent mob making a giant mistake about what someone's intention was. Amen. Now, um, I think society doesn't know what irony is, thanks to Alanis Morissette, who taught <laughs> us right. the wrong lesson right. there. Hit 10,000 forks when you need a spoon. Yeah, and it's all good and well for the right wing to complain about cancel culture, but do the Dixie Chicks ring a bell, anybody? So, yes, you know, you were more than happy to cancel them. <laughs> oh, yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and I brought this up recently and someone goes, oh, but they bad mouthed America when they were overseas. And I'm like, and? and and so goodness gracious me. Here you go. America's shit. I bad mouthed America. Now cancel me. <laughs> oh, no, but I like you. Oh, OK. Mm. That's what yeah. it is. You're not a country music star. You can't get away with that shit when you're a country music star because it's all about the stars and stripes and the red, white, and blue and the pickup trucks and the beer and whatnot. And that's what their that's their genre that they perform in. So the yes. audience takes it real seriously. Mm. Yes. We'll move on. How true is write what you know, especially in comedy and animation? Because I hear this a lot or write your own voice or all that. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm going to write what is funny. It depends on what you're writing. You know, obviously you can make, look, great science fiction, whatever. If you're writing a genre piece, you mm -hmm. just be creative. You know, if you're writing horror yeah. or science fiction or whatever, or an adventure story, you know, like what people, the guys who are the screenplay for Raiders of the Lost Ark had not lived any of that kind of action adventure material, but they had watched it from, you know, from exactly. old serials. Yeah. So it's perfectly fine to do that. Now, yeah. in certain things, if you want to write certain types of books, especially also if you want to write a drama, if you want to write something serious that deals with real human emotions, it's best that you felt those emotions or been in situations like that, because it will give it, it gives you more, it gives you more detail that makes it more real. But that's not to say you couldn't make it up from scratch if you're, you know, if you're talented. This so-called hashtag writing community. And this is one of the things is that write your own voice, write what you know. And I'm like, bitch, no. I'm not writing myself because that's going to bore everyone. Well, let me let me give you the modified modified version of that that you hear in TV. Yeah, it is point of view. It's not necessarily you have to write about your own experiences, but you need to depict them with a specific point of view mm -hmm. because you don't want to be bland. Yeah. And that's I think that's part of that's sometimes what is meant in this genre is that when you see when you people are writing scripts, it's like ah, oh, this is a certain style. You can tell. So even on, there's certain shows where you can tell which writers wrote them, yep. you know, where you can tell on X-Files and Simpsons often you can tell like that's a Schwarzwelder script, you know, and, and things like that. You can see that person has a style, has a point of view, and that's very valuable. Yeah. So I would say write your own style is a more applicable thing than write what you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree. I, it took me 14 years to write my novels because I needed to erase influences like yourself, Bill, basically. <laughs> and you can't rush into it, I don't think. Yeah. Especially not for a novel. Oh, no. Where's my plug of the week? Yes, it's my plug of the week. Now, okay. Like, <laughs> comedy is subjective, uh, but in a writer's room, there is many voices and minds and points of views. Uh, roughly what percentage of jokes does the showrunner need to find funny in order to go tick that that gets the green light well rarely does anything go if the showrunner is the same as the person who's running the writer's room which often is everything i mean this that they you've got to make the calls i have to find the whole thing funny wow so you need to have a broad sense of humor well you know like let me say you got to be willing to have an open mind where you have to know what you want i guess is also more helpful you know 
I've let in plenty of jokes that I didn't find funny, but everybody else laughed at on The Simpsons. Generally, I didn't do it all the time, but when everybody else was like, this is hilarious, and I was like, I don't get it, I still put it in. And so there's a few of those, even to this day, I'm like, I don't get that joke. And there's certain plot points, too, that I was like, I don't like this, but everyone else likes it, so okay, I'll put it in. So that's, but I don't do that all the time. It would, it would take a majority of the room <laughs> to make me rethink my own position on it. Yeah, and that's what, that's what I thought I'd, I'd ask about that because myself, I don't find much funny. So me being a showrunner on a comedy show would not be a good idea because yeah, I would barely be laughing at anything. <laughs> it's not everything. That's right. You'd be, everyone would be there all night, every night because you wouldn't, it would be, they would never, they'd never be able to get any lines into the script or you have to write it yourself. Or I'd have to write it myself. That's it. Um, you can make me laugh, but you need to catch me off guard or be really darn clever about it, which neither of those two things Evan can do. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> the Simpsons is a satire with dashes of parody, and it has been accused of being prophetic as well, notably with the setting precedence for the President Trump. Is this to suggest that us in real life have turned into parody and satire ourselves if The Simpsons is coming true? in our real lives. Yes, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly, that's exactly what happened. That, that's exactly what happened. You hit the nail on the head. A lot of the Simpsons stuff is not prophetic. It is, um, well, first of all, a large percentage of stuff that people claim that we predicted is fake, is something mm. that someone has Photoshopped together. But of the things that we actually did predict, many of them are just obvious extrapolations of what probably would happen in 20 years from now. Yeah. But the other, there are a few, like Donald Trump becoming president, that are amazing. And in that case, the guy, my friend, Dan Graney, who wrote that, said it was a logical last step before hitting rock bottom. Perfect. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. And so a society has, look, I don't want to be a fatalist about this, or but your society has gotten dumber. There's no question that in the past 25 to 30 years, every, the society as a whole has gotten stupider and mm-hmm. more and more like more likely to riot over something like a Jimmy Carter statue. You know, that's like that as as we had, like, and the thing is that we used to just depict, like, here's a town full of dummies who don't know what's going on, who get all riled up over everything. And so we, it was a joke back then. Now, much of the behavior that was depicted in the Simpsons in the nineties is realistic, is is happening today because everyone is is so stupid and so poorly informed. (laughs) And, and a lot of these people have been, they've been unleashed to a large extent by Donald Trump. That, it, that they're like they're perfectly fine with saying stuff like i don't need to be vaccinated or or things like you're you know being mad at calling up the guy who the head doctor and threatening his life because you don't want to have to take a vaccine things of that nature that are beyond parody that mm-hmm. happen all the time here in america due to the fact that donald trump made it totally okay to be an outrageous uh, lunatic you know to be a lunatic mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and and there's no shame in it anymore no. Yeah. He didn't create the lunatics. He just gave them a voice. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Because remember, they were already draining swimming pools yeah. because of a disease in the 80s. But wearing a mask <laughs> is asking too much of them. Just stop and think of the logic there. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot. Right. It takes a hell of a lot to empty a swimming pool. But it takes 10 seconds to grab a mask and put it on. Like, I, I don't logic understand. doesn't apply no it doesn't logic, apply consistency reason uh none of those things apply and that's um, that's an unfortunate thing that's happened over the past so yes so those so the characters that was in the 1990s 
you didn't see nearly so much of that. Now it's commonplace. Yeah. So I don't think that we predicted stuff so much as we people became the mob became stupider. Yeah, we turned into <laughs> the citizens of Springfield, which is what I was expecting you to say in the question. Yeah, yeah. At the answer, yeah. anyways. Yeah, I was going to say the whole world is now Springfield. Yes, now it is. Uh, have you had any desire to write a feature? Uh, live action or animation? Yes. Well, Josh and I both wrote a couple movies that we sold. They never got made. Most movie, most movies that are written and sold do not get made. But we did it. It was it was. Pretty, I don't like it quite as much as TV because the problem is the writer is a peon in movies. In TV, the writer is the showrunner who, who's the boss of everything. In the movies, you write the script, you sell it, and you're gone. Mm. You're lucky if they send you a ticket to come to the premiere. You know, and that's it. And then the movie is all about. You don't ever know who does. It's all about the director. It's all about the actors. Mm-hmm. And you never. The writer never gets mentioned or even treated well or invited to the set you know in in tv it's the complete opposite yeah yeah no i i do find that um i actually i did have a follow-up there but that's the matter we'll move on to your fast food because you have been doing your reviews and i have my mcdonald's socks on hey wow i love my fast food and my mcdonald's which we call maccas so if maccas was to put out an oakley burger what would be in it well they already kind of do it honestly it's a cheeseburger with everything on it meaning lettuce, tomato, pickles, onions, mayonnaise, ketchup, and a little mustard. And they don't do that, but you can modify the quarter pounder deluxe to be like that. And, and honestly, it's, it's, it's certainly the best nationally available burger we have here in my opinion, because uh, they've improved it over the years with the, uh, they don't use frozen beef anymore. And so that's what I like, but uh, there's other ones. And the Australia, by the way, the Aussie burger I made last summer, the Aussie burger, which is the one with the kangaroo meat. Oh, okay, yeah. And the, the beet, you guys have, you guys all put pickled beets on your burgers. Well, That's a normal thing. No, it's not normal. No, it's not? My dad does it and I fucking ate it. Seriously, <laughs> I run. Yeah, I've got to be in the mood for beetroot. No, no, never in the mood. Get it out of my house. Kill it. Uh, I made the I made a recipe for the Aussie burger with the lock, as they say, and, and it had all that, had that stuff on it. Yep. Most of the stuff was fairly normal, except for the beetroot. Yeah, um, but I didn't mind the beetroot. It was actually not that different than pickles. It's a little bit different than pickles. What about pineapple and egg? Yes, those were both on it too. Okay, yeah, very good. Not that I have them in my burgers. It was really good. It was, yeah, good. Because like, the macos, I think you can. It's one of those off-menu things that you can ask for, like the um crunchy McFlurries, which were really, really good. Oh, but I, I did notice there was you did a a poll of the international treats and Chomp. I think Chomp won. Chomp was my favorite can- international can. I have so much Australian food here, by the way. Good. This whole, like right next to me, the whole thing is loaded with twisties. <laughs> yeah, I love good, twisties. Yum. Only certain flavors, like the cheeseburger flavor that was a limited time flavor and the meat lovers pizza flavor. Um, and I have, yes, but the Chomp bar is such a simple candy bar that we don't have that. It's like, it's almost like a Kit Kat with caramel inside it. And which it just seems mm. like a no brainer, but we don't have one like that in America. Yeah. So yeah, the Chomp bar um, really it was the best international candy bar I had last year by a wide margin. The the chomps have been around forever as well. They they're the lower sort of price point yeah. of chocolate bars. So you know if the kids are going, oh, can I have a chocolate? Can I have a chocolate? Say, yeah, have a chomp. You know, because because you're cheap. Because it's only you know it's eighty eighty cents. You know. Yeah, because you're cheap. That's why. Yes. <laughs> And it's small. It's a you know, in weight. In weight, yeah, they are quite light and fluffy. Right. It's smaller than, than most regular candy bars. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they are very light and fluffy. I, I like them. Um, now we have there's a chocolate here. If you can get your hands on it, Cadbury caramel. I have. I've had those too. Excellent. 
good. Yes, I've gotten a pretty good, thanks to some of my Australian fans, I've gotten a pretty generous, also cost fortune to ship the stuff yeah. <laughs> from Australia to here and to vice right. versa. Somebody wanted, right here, you guys don't have ranch dressing there. Or you don't have very much ranch dressing. No, One guy really. from Australia wanted me to ship him a couple bottles of ranch dressing and it was over a hundred bucks. Yep. Yep. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> And now you can't even send stuff to Australia. Like apparently we're not even doing it anymore because it's too, there, there's some, I don't know what it is, but there's apparently some COVID. Yeah, <laughs> it could be COVID. Well, yeah, the, the postal system is under a bit of strain at the moment. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, well, see around here we have, you know, I'm surprised you don't have like an Aussie store somewhere that stocks all that stuff. Cause you know, we have a, we have a New Zealand store and we have a British deli and we have a you know an american shop that stocks all the american stuff there's an online store no like local brick and mortar stores oh with the, oh. the imported stuff mm. yeah and they're really good they are really good you get all the american stuff like three musketeers mm. ever since watching zombieland um i've been fascinated by twinkies because we don't have them oh yeah yes and they do well, I, I just let me finish my story. Maybe not you <laughs> on the arse end of Australia, but us on the normal populated side. I had never seen a Twinkie. And it was only literally last year. We have this shop called Spud Shed and they have like a British aisle and a New Zealand aisle. And they had an American aisle and they have, they've got all the American um, cereals and uh, all that kind of stuff. And, and I was like, oh, that's an American cereal. This is whole American aisle. I wonder if they have, yes, there they are, Twinkies. And I immediately bought a box. My wife is like, what the hell are you buying Twinkies for? It's like, because it's a Twinkie. <laughs> I've never seen one before. And um, yeah, and uh, yeah, they were just this big ball of bloody sugar and we never bought them again. It's just literally just a sponge <laughs> cake with a bit of cream and I'm like, it's really yeah. not that exciting. But I know. They are Twinkies. That, that is that iconic thing. Yeah. Anyways, so what has been your proudest achievement? Like a single project or something that's been the, that you would say has been the pinnacle of your career? Uh... Besides coming on this podcast, of course. <laughs> yeah, yes. I don't know. I would probably say the Frank Grimes episode of The Simpsons was, yeah. cer was certainly one of them. The getting the Emmy for the John Waters episode, probably the John Watt getting the Emmy for the John Waters episode of The Simpsons was noteworthy because that was the Emmy that we actually won, that we earned. Because a lot of times you get the award and you didn't really have much to do with that script. That one we shepherded that thing from, you know, from an idea, and part of it was our idea anyway. So that's probably it. But also, I'd say single-handedly with no help from anyone developing myself into a food celebrity from nothing was it's been it's been a quite has been very enjoyable because now i do get you know i appear on tv shows and i commercials and things like that and i get offers to go places and and get free stuff um and i didn't and if and three years ago i didn't have any of that because i didn't you know i, I sort of kind of did this I did it with no help from anyone, no help from my agents or lawyers or any production companies or any executives giving me notes and started from zero. Um, I mean, zero being, I was already a, a comedy writer, so I had some skills, but like, I didn't know how to edit a video. I didn't know how to use Instagram and that sort of thing. So that it, it, that's very satisfying, I would say. Actually, yeah, we, we rewatched some Simpsons um, yesterday. I, it's my, my wife had never seen the, the Bart versus Australia episode. Oh wow! So I we sat down literally yesterday and watched it. Was she offended? Yeah, no. What she was her main question? Her main question was like, "Why does everyone sound British?" <laughs> that's the, that's Americans doing that. It's the, I know the Aussie Kiwi accent that they think we have. That's what they're doing. 
That's the one. Yes, that's the one. Uh, that's the one, mate. I could hear Australian accent. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm quite proud of my Australian accent. That's actually, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but like even the even the shot of the Parliament looked like the British Parliament. The Austrian Austria, you mean? Yeah. No, but the interior. Oh, okay. The interior, how they okay. drew it, it looks like yeah. the British Parliament. Yeah. So the only the only real question is. Um, what would a Bart versus Australia episode look like in 2022 with, you know, so much exposure online and, you know, our crazy government and, you know, people watching what Fox News think of them? You know, that's a good question. I don't have a good answer off the top of my head, but I think the thing is that it's uh, what we were doing in the, in, the, in the original episode was making fun of all the Australian stereotypes that were had already swamped America during the 80s. Yeah. So it was entirely concocted. Our vision of Australia, neither of us having ever been there, was entirely concocted from scratch, from mm. Crocodile Dundee and from every other thing that we saw, uh, you know. And so it was designed to be silly and and hopefully, you know, Australians have good, we thought Australians have good sense of humor about yeah. themselves and find it amusing. So supposed uh, to be. today, there's two, it's once again, we're in that situation where it's too the silliness is too close to reality it's you know it's beyond <laughs> both in america and australia it's almost beyond parody so it's hard it would be hard to make fun of it in any realistic way yeah but you've got chris hemsworth and all the hemsworth brothers so there's a joke in that that we keep producing hemsworths yeah well it'd be hard to do the politics of it the thing is i think that people are more familiar with australia doesn't seem like such a australia's to, to americans these days i think it seems more sophisticated and more urbane as opposed yeah. to being being an outback filled with like you know crocodile hunters and yeah. stuff like that as opposed as it was in the 80s now people are familiar with with australia being a more sophisticated more and also having a lot of the same problems that we have politically so it's not it's not as much of an unknown which i think was part of the fun yeah that's why I was sort of interested in, in how would that hypothetical of how how would that look with that exposure, knowing all this, what sort of things would be poked fun of? And yeah, now our, our prime minister at the moment is Trump 2.0. So there's a lot of material there. He would like to be, maybe. He would like to be. He's more like yeah. Mr. Magoo. I don't know. Have you seen Duterte and, you know... Bolsonaro, god damn there's some there's some very trumpy leaders out there yeah they, but they're actual like they're the people that trump wanted to be wish he could have been because they can actually enact their tyranny so yeah before we run out of time I'm, i've got to get in it's, it's such an honor to be able to talk to uh the man who was involved in an episode that has worked itself into my vocabulary whenever i see a article on the news where they've spent some ridiculous amount of money on, on a project for something stupid, I will still turn to the TV and go, what? $1.5 million he does? <laughs> still do it to this day. I'm so glad. What a nerd. What an absolute <laughs> nerd. I'm so embarrassed right now. Okay, now if you, it, it, all the shows you've worked on, if you were allowed, if those creators, those copyright owners said to you, you're allowed one character from each project, to create your own show, which characters would would you have in this super band of or the Marvel universe? I guess it would be the Avengers of animated TV. <laughs> you know, this, okay. Here's the question: Does the show have to be successful? Because it would be oh, a different no. thing if I. No. Okay, good. It's... Because I would choose characters that would not be successful. I would choose Superintendent Chalmers from The Simpsons. Excellent. Yeah. I would choose Gus from Mission Hill. Um, I would choose, uh, 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 I'd probably choose Zap Brannigan from Futurama. 
um, I would choose, uh, I don't know if you have any, I don't know what other shows you guys are familiar with that I worked on. Um, I would choose the ant from Chicago party ant. I would choose Alex Orfenberger from close enough. So it's, a, it's kind of a motley crew of, you know, we of malcontents, I guess I would say they may not work together and they're probably, and there's certainly like, I'm sure I'm the only person on the Simpsons who would not choose Homer, but I'm tired of Homer and his antics. This, I like the mellow, dyspeptic, you know, uh, style of Superintendent Chalmers, that, <laughs> which nobody would pick but other than me. But that's what the kind of humor I like. Yes, you might, one might say he is an esteemed ham. <laughs> uh, now, I, um, oh, when I went to bed yeah. last night, I thought, while I'm lying down, mind you, I'm going to draw Homer Simpson and see how this turns out. <laughs> lying on my side, mind you. So this is my attempt at, I drew lots of them, as we can see. None of them look like Homer. He has a big. Fat those are good. Head. Those are those They're are not bad. They're good. not. That this one, I got a tick. This one got a tick. But um, as you can see, I forgot to put the ear in because I do know it's an M and a G. I watch my DVD special features. I could turn it upside down and see the other side. So look at that. Like that's awful. And the because I'm doing it from the side, they're all stretched out. It's like a football field where they. It's still better than I could do. I've draw, tried to draw Homer Simpson thousands of times. Well, thank you. I I, I do appreciate that. You could do like an Andy Warhol uh, color scheme and chuck that on a shirt. No problems. I have Leon Kampowski as a figurine. Wow. I didn't even know they made that. Yeah, we got Leon. Yeah. I got. Well, actually, if we had more time for the, the musical, we're going to do HMS Pinafore because I have this with Sideshow Bob wow. in his costume. <laughs> so I got a whole bunch of them, but I only picked out a few ones and Homer in his Moo. That's a good one. I wish I had that one. Um, so yeah, like they all just sit on my desk. Uh, but in 2015, I gave my nephew $30 to buy any figure he wanted at a convention. And he picked two figurines from The Simpsons. As a five-year-old, he picked Rod and Todd. Wow. I know. And I thought at the time, like, that's so funny because why? But also, that's really clever because why pick Homer or Bart, Marge, Lisa, Maggie, or even Ned Flanders? Why not go with obscure characters that you're not going to be able to just walk into any old a toy store and buy? So... Well, did he maybe just pick them because they're kids? Possibly, yeah. Or he was a little nerd and still is. That's probably <laughs> more likely it. Uh, close enough. Yes, I I did not make up close enough. It is if you you saw a regular show, it's from the same guy who did that, and um, yep. it's a, the great te- a great team. I am the head writer for season three, which is just being animated right now. Yep. Uh, and possibly season four, should that be ordered as well. Um, and we're just finishing that up. But the first season, I'm pretty sure, is on HBO. If you guys have HBO Max there. No. No. You don't? No. We, we get most of the shows from it. Yeah. Yeah, not available in our country. No. Okay. Well, it's on it, season one is on there now, and I believe season two has also recently come out overseas. It's on Netflix in Australia. But anyways, I've come to the end of my questions. So thank you so, so much for, for taking time out this silly little show that we've got and for, for taking the time to listen to the music because I know that you are very, very busy. So it was an absolute honour. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, it was a lot of fun and it broadened my horizons. I would never have listened to either of those things had I not, had I not uh, been on the show. That's it. We want to open minds at, you know, this point of people's careers. We want to say to them, uh-huh. you've got to open your mind a little bit more here. Come on our show and listen to music. Yeah. Now, where can people find you on the social medias? 
that Bill Oakley, and that's O-A-K-L-E-Y, that Bill Oakley on both Twitter and Instagram. If you want food, I only do food stuff on Instagram. Yep. I do vid- videos and I post uh, other things on my Instagram story every day. On Twitter, it's just random stuff of every, every description. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yes. Uh, and um, I know you love to engage in conversations about fast food. And I, I do. Don't worry, I, tr- <laughs> I, do. I try not to because then I'll just get hungry. Like literally yeah. it was five, <laughs> five o'clock in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. I had um, a chicken drumstick rubbed in tomato and garlic with hash browns and Coca-Cola for breakfast. So that sounds great. I know, right? Said I, I had a very Aussie breakfast this morning. I had a sausage roll. Yes. Have you had, have you tried? What is, actually, have you been to Australia at all? Since? I have never been to Australia. I'm wow. dying to visit. I've been wow. dying to visit for a long time. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, and there's a tons of things I want to see and do yeah. and eat. Um, yes. And I'm familiar with the whole sausage thing. The whole thing about election day, you get a sausage at the, at the hardware store. Uh, right? Democracy sausage. Yes. 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 Right. Yeah, well, the hardware store is uh, a, a sort of a separate thing. Generally, on a Sunday, they do fundraising for local sports teams. And, yeah, and the and, scouts. Yeah, so you can go to Bunnings, you know, pick up your uh, two by fours and a, and a new hammer and get yourself a you know $2 hot dog. Yeah. Yeah, as, as snag, as we call them. Yeah, um, that's right. That's what it was. That's what now, I was trying to think of. If you're yeah. ever in Melbourne, I'm going to get you the greatest donuts in the world. They are just dough balls that they pump jam into the middle of them and they roll them in sugar. Like that's really all they are. They're not fancy, you know, proper donut shapes. They're just literally, literally dough testicles. So Uh that's what they look like. And they are crunchy and golden and delicious. And they have a reputation for just being the best so if you're ever in melbourne i'm going to get you some of those fantastic you them because they're, they're a small shitty market that is so dirty and crappy that you walk in there like i'm going to get salmonella i'm clearly <laughs> going to die by the end of today but the donuts are just out of this world they really are the best but anyways on that note to you at home you take care and we shall see you next time Hooroo. awesome thanks for having me What? 1.5 million dollar he does? <laughs>